Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your love this morning. And we think of the amazing grace that you bestowed upon us, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. And we praise you, Lord, for that eternal life. We realize, Father, that one day we're going to be together with just a multitude of saints of all ages, of all of all races upon the face of this earth who have been touched by the love of Christ. And we will, we will celebrate your great love for us together as one great body. Lord, we look at the world and around us, the world we find ourselves in, and it's so troubled. It's so in need of Jesus. Lord, I just pray that we would be available to you and willing, Lord, to, to share the gospel with people so that they could also enjoy the life that Christ has given. The good things that you have given to us and, and the blessings yet to come. We realize that, Lord, we possess the riches, so, so many riches in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray now for this time as we gather together and lift our thoughts toward your word and what you may say to us through your word today. I pray that every heart would be open and that, Lord, we would just be willing to walk according to the way that you have shown us in your word, in the power of the Spirit. May Christ be glorified, I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You're all familiar with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with what? All your heart and what? Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. We'll be talking about that in the weeks to come here. But this message this morning, trust God above all else. Part of the series on discerning the will of God. Moving on from popular methods of trying to discern God's word to what I think we should be doing, we all should be doing, as we ask that big question, Lord, what would you have me to do? In the ancient world, I'm going to be touching on a few things we already have mentioned. In the ancient world of pagans, all sorts of ways were employed in trying to decipher the will of the gods. And that practice was called divination. It was an occultic practice. And what's interesting is the, the fact that about 90% of ancient cuneiform writings from some of the oldest civilizations on earth, in Sumer, in Assyria, in Babylonia, had clear evidence of this practice of divination. Many of the tablets were actually ways or methods of divining the, the intent of the gods, the message of the gods. Now, one of the, the methods that I mentioned before was hepatoscopy, which was the study, sounds real weird to us, the study of the liver of a freshly killed animal. They would try to determine what God was speaking through the liver of an animal. Now, I can assure you, if you have a quiver in your liver, it's not some secret message. You might need to see a doctor, though. 
Ezekiel 21.21 actually mentions this. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road, at the fork of the two roads, to use divination. He shakes the arrows, he consults the images, he looks at the liver. Now, what we learned early on in the series is that all of the ancient practices of divination were forbidden by God. And many people continue to practice these things today, especially in the the New Age religions. Deuteronomy 18.10, it's not the only scripture, but it's, uh, it's very clear. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritus, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out before you, all of those Canaanite tribes. One evangelical theologian said this, certainly as 20th century Christians, we shouldn't be considering examining a liver to determine God's will. But unfortunately, many modern followers of Christ do seek guidance in ways dangerously close to divination. One of the first books that I ever read about preaching was by a man named Haddon Robinson, who was considered by many to to set the standard for good preaching. He was named after Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of Preachers, and he dedicated his life to the subject of preaching. And he was fond of saying, when we preach the Bible, We preach with authority. When we preach the Bible, we preach with authority, biblical authority. And he also said this, the Bible does not provide a map for life, only a compass. In other words, it doesn't give us all of the specifics that we would like to have in order to make decisions in life. Robinson also said this in one of his books, when we believe anything simply because it has a biblical flavor to it, we are believing something that God did not say. This myth has an element of truth along with a great deal of puff. In other words, looking for things outside of Scripture. And people tend to live in the puff. I call that Christianity light. And they live with the implication of implications, and then they discover what they thought God promised he didn't promise. And that he called the heresy of application. In other words, taking a Bible verse out of its context and trying to apply it. And he gave one example, I think, you know, pretty relevant to all of us. He says, I I spoke with a young woman whose husband had left her. She said, I have tried to be submissive. Doesn't the Bible say if a wife submits, she will have a happy and successful marriage? No, I said, the Bible doesn't say that. She said, well, I've gone to seminars and heard that. And Haddon responded, what the Bible says is you have a responsibility as a wife. 
A husband also has a responsibility. But the best you may have is a C marriage. There is no guarantee you will have an A marriage. Many people get divorced because they think that, well, this isn't working out so good. Uh, I, I need to move on and marry someone else. And maybe they're thinking they're going to go from a C marriage to a B marriage to an A marriage. They might go to a D marriage. It might be worse. But many of the methods that Christians use to discover God's will, I call popular methods of evaluating God's will. I think they're the puffs of smoke that Robinson spoke about. They're, they're, they're on the verge of myths that have been Christianized a little bit, and they become biblical in people's minds. But, but many of them are not biblical. And just let me say honestly to you this morning that there are no guarantees that all will go well for you in life, even if you try to live an obedient life. No guarantees. In fact, it might get worse. But but I know, wait, wait a minute. You might be thinking, Joshua 1.8, I just pulled that out of my promise box this morning. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law will not depart from your mouth, but you will meditate it, meditate on it day and night, then and that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Isn't that a promise for me? No, it's not. Number one, Joshua 1.8 was not written for you. It was written to the Israelites as they were heading into the promised land. And number two, if you make success in your life, if you make success your goal in life, then that might become your idol. Success may become your idol. So alongside Joshua 1.8, let's put Josh, John 15.20. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. So both Joshua 1.8 and John 15.20 are true, if understood in their context. I love the book of Proverbs, and I hope you read, you know, the Proverbs of the day, you know, whatever, tomorrow, today is what, Proverbs 1. But keep this in mind when you're reading Proverbs, it's wisdom literature. Proverbs are not promises. You mark that down. What you read in Proverbs are not promises. Give me an example. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. What Solomon is saying is there this, that this is what more typically happens in life. If you please the Lord, you're, you're going to have better relationships with people. But that sure didn't apply to the Apostle Paul's life. He gave all of his life to the Lord. He lived to please the Lord. And he had more enemies than he knew what to do with. So the Proverbs, and you can mark this down, the Proverbs are consistent observations, not categorical absolutes. 
So he's looking out upon life and he's making, he's observing things and he's making an application. Well, if, if, if you, if you please the Lord, things are going to go better for you, generally speaking with other people. And I should also mention, don't, don't seek the idol of success in life. Too many, too many people are doing that, especially young people. Seek the fruit of an obedient life. Seek the fruit that comes from living obediently to God. And then you can be assured that God's word will never fail you. It will never fail you. First Kings 8.55 says, And he, Solomon, stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, that he hath given rest unto his people Israel according to all that he promised to them, right? There hath not one word failed of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. Jeremiah 1.12, Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. Listen, we can mark it down. God always keeps his word. Always. Therefore, you can trust the Lord with all your heart. You can trust God at all times. You can trust God above all else. You can trust God in seeking wisdom for life's decisions, small and big. It will be sufficient. Now, in case you're just coming late to this series, which some of you are, um, I distinguished earlier on between the three different wills of God in Scripture. First one we pointed out, if you remember, was God's sovereign will, which is often hidden. Often hidden. God sometimes does work in unusual ways through the circumstances we find ourselves in. Even in directing some of those circumstances, which are what I call acts of providence. Timothy George describes God's providence. You may have heard that term. God's providence as God's faithful and effective care and guidance of everything which he has made toward the end for which he has chosen. God's faithful and effective care and guidance of everything which he has made toward the end which he has chosen. That's divine providence. But like with sovereignty, we often do not see God's providential works in our life until we look back, until we look back and see how he has cared for us, and see where he has led us, and, and, and just seeing his marvelous grace bestowed upon us, even in some of the most difficult circumstances of life. Psalm 77:10. I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Boy, when you get older, this takes on more meaning. You could remember the years of the right hand of the Most High, the lean years, the tough years. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of all your deeds. When you get older, you can see much more clearly how God has worked in your life. And it ought to bring you to, to a level of praise that reaches the heavens, right? You have so much more to praise God and thank God for. 
So there's God's sovereign will. Then secondly, we talked about God's prescriptive will, which is clearly revealed in the scripture. This is his moral will, his will of command, the do's and the don'ts. And it is because God's moral will prescribes our goals, touches our goals, our attitudes, our actions, our perspectives, our motives, that it touches every aspect of our life. So we're not left without direction. We have God's moral will in his word. Things like, in everything, give thanks, right? Be filled with the Spirit. Love your enemies. Flee temptation. Be generous. Be kind and loving. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. Redeem the time because the days are evil. It's all part of the moral will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. Just as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. Even your sanctification. You're, you're setting a part of your life more and more to God. And that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in possession, the, the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Let me also say this as you're thinking about the moral will of God, all of these commands in Scripture. When there is no clear command, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose wisely. But I remind you this morning that freedom has limitations, right? We saw that when we were talking about Romans and, you know, uh, eating eating meats that some people in that, that time were sacrificing titles and they were offending their brothers. And he urged them to abstain from these things, even though you had the liberty to, to eat these things, abstain for them so that you wouldn't have a negative impact upon the life of your brother. Here's an example. 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, that's the law of God. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes. But then he adds this little part, right? Only in the Lord, only a believer. So there is the liberty, in this case, for a woman to remarry if her husband has died, but only another believer, only in the Lord. Then thirdly, there is what I call God's desired will, which is not always fulfilled. And this has to do with the, the attitude, really, or the, or the heart of God pertaining to the things that please him or, or displease him. And those things are revealed in Scripture. And you can tie, I believe, God's desired will to his will of command to some extent. And what, what I mean by that is God desires the surrender of our will to his for our sanctification. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is all about that. But we can still rebel against that, right? God's desire is this. Paul said in Romans 12, 1, I implore you, I beg you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or act of worship, that's what it means. And do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, that you may demonstrate as genuine what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So that's God's desire for us. But we often don't fulfill it. God desires everyone who hears the gospel and receives it to come to the knowledge of the truth. But many people refuse to even hear the gospel or receive the good news. That's why 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that what any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires that we live for him and not for ourselves. Who are you living for? It's a diagnostic question. Who are you living for? With the short life that you have, and trust me, life is short. It's just a vapor. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all. That's the Lord Jesus. Unlimited atonement. He died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's a great scripture to commit to memory. It really is. Don't live for yourself. Live for the one who died for you, rose again, ascended on high, is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, waiting to make his enemies his footstools. Jesus is coming again. Live for him. And to this end, not living for ourselves, but living for God, John Wesley said this, Lord, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Let me be employed by you or laid aside by you, exalted for you or brought low by you. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O gracious or glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. Amen. That's, that's a prayer of dedication. Lord, my life is yours. I'm not going to live to please myself, but to please you. Now, people add to these three wills of God, the sovereign will, the prescriptive will, and God's desired will, a, a fourth one, the specific will of God for you individually. And they teach that it's crucial to, to, to know this will, to find God's specific will for your life if you want to be in what they call the center of his will, the bullseye, in the center of the target. So what happens if you miss the bullseye? You're not, you're not in the center of God's will. You, you, you've failed, and you've got you've to accept second best, third best, whatever it would happen to be. Gary Friesen, in his book, Decision Making in the Will of God, he called this the traditional view. And traditional because it has caught on in, in the contemporary church. And it goes like this. 
God has a specific ideal blueprint. If you imagine looking at a blueprint for construction blueprint, God has a specific ideal blueprint for every person's life, which that person may either discern and follow or deviate from and therefore miss God's ideal plan for his life. And it is the responsibility of the believer to seek and obey it. And it often involves those popular methods of discerning God's will that I've already spoken about. You Gosen, perceiving God's voice, divine guidance for everyday believers. There are committed and sincere believers who consistently do all of the things recommended by the traditional perspective only to find that their theology does not match their experience. Simply put, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Keep in mind that, that seemingly small decisions can have big consequences, major consequences. I knew a young man and had several Bible studies with him, actually. One day, he was on, his wife was on her way to work, and she decided to stop at a roadside flower stand to buy some flowers for her husband and bring him home. Seemingly, I mean, it was big in her mind, of course. She loved him. But a seemingly small decision. I'm just going to stop, get these flowers. Then go to work. Well, she stopped. She got the flowers. She was in a rush. She went to her car, and she didn't see a tractor trailer that was coming too close. And she went around her car. When she swung around her car, she got out too far, and the, the tractor trailer hit her and killed her instantly. So sometimes insignificant decisions have major major consequences. We make many, many decisions every single day. Most of them are not of great consequence. Some are. But how do we get guidance in our decision-making when the decisions are significant? What job should I take? Where, where should I go to school? What major should I pursue if you're a young person? Maybe you get older. What, what home should I buy, right? Where, where should I live? Whom should I marry? Now, there's a big one that's going to follow you all the days of your life. What church should I attend? That's a big decision. Is there a process to go through in making those kind of big decisions? Emphasis, a process. It may surprise you to hear that neither Jesus nor the apostles ever taught a step-by-step process by which we can determine God's will for our lives. It's not in the Bible. It would be nice, you know, maybe an appendix. Here it is. This is what you need to do. One, two, three, four, five. It's, God, God didn't put it there. But he didn't leave us shorthanded either. He's given us plenty of wisdom in his word to make right decisions. This we'll get into more as we go forward. Call, let's just call this the, the wisdom model.
the wisdom model. Now, I think it's important to understand this because a misunderstanding of God's will, the idea of a, the, the bullseye in the center of target and you have to hit it, has led many people to ultimately reject the scripture and even reject God. Because they feel they, they've done so many things and God's let them down. He didn't keep his word. He didn't guide them. They married the wrong person. They took the job, wrong job and they're miserable and they prayed about it. They went to the wrong school. They flunked out. God, it didn't work for me. You're not worthy of my trust anymore. So many people who teach that you can know God's specific will for your life inadvertently set them up to become disillusioned with God. The problem isn't with God. God can always be trusted. Always be trusted. The problem is with the faulty understanding of God's word, his promises, and decisions that we make following biblical wisdom principles rather than trying to discern it through some of the more popular methods and such. You know, the same thing can be, can be said in our understanding of prayer, right? We can pray to be healed. Pray for a wayward son or daughter that they would return to the Lord. Pray for a godly marriage partner. Pray for a godly marriage. You can pray and pray and pray about all of those things and you end up with or can end up with no healing. The son or daughter doesn't turn their life over to Christ and you have a C marriage at best. What do you do? Stop praying? Stop trusting God? No, no, you don't. You continue on trusting God even in the things you don't understand. Realizing that we live in a fallen world and things aren't going to always go like we want them to go. The hymn goes, his word will not fail you. He promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying his perfect salvation to tell. What does Romans 8.28 says? God works what all things together for good to those who love him to those who are called according to his promise or his purpose. And we love to claim that verse. And it is true. But as I said, when we preach through Romans, it's talking about the sum total of all the things that God takes us through in life. In the end, we're going to see what God has done. We're going to see his sovereign will worked out as we look back. But not every moment of our life is good as we go through that. Not every piece of your life mosaic is good and neatly fits into place. If you're honest with yourself, you know that's true. But still the Christian can say, truthfully and sincerely, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. And even in the midst of all of the chaos, maybe of your life, Sometimes it's more chaotic than others, especially if you have five kids. You can have the supernatural peace of God 
that surpasses all of our understanding. The supernatural peace of God that, that sits, sits as an empire in our heart and rules over our emotions and rules over our anxieties. And listen, sometimes we get emotional and sometimes we get anxious and we just really, you know, get beside ourselves. But it's the word of God and the peace of the, the Holy Spirit using the word of God to bring us back to center, right? To calm us down, to calm us down. And by the way, the Holy Spirit supplies peace in abundance. So let me close with this. Doing the will of God doesn't always lead to the best outcomes in life. Sometimes doing the will of God leads to suffering. Literally or even emotionally. First Peter 3.17, it is better, Peter said, if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And the lives of millions and millions of Christians down through the ages bear testimony to the truth that you can trust God above all else at all times, even in the darkest times of your life. You can still trust him. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to dwell on well, where did I where did I go, go wrong? What what step did I miss? You don't have to to worry about all those things. You can trust him. His his word will not fail you. He promised. Continue to believe him. And this is why 1 Peter 4:19, if you paid attention this morning to the scripture reading, he closed that chapter with this. Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God. That's his sovereign will. God calls some people to suffer. Some people to suffer great loss for his glory. Some people to suffer great bodily illnesses for his glory. Some people to suffer the persecution the enemies of Christ for his glory. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. You can trust God at all times. At all times. And if your faith is wavering right now, Maybe you're going through something. Maybe you've been holding on to something that God has disappointed you with in your life. Watch. Just be very careful. You don't become bitter. You don't become bitter. You need to go to the throne of grace. You need to tell exactly, tell God exactly how you feel because he already knows how you feel. That's called confession. Remember I told you one time, Jeremiah the prophet felt so let down that he dared to say, God, you have deceived me. The prophet of God. Well, things turned out 
quickly better for him in the sense of coming to grips with that. But but that's the thought that entered his mind. And if we're honest, it enters our mind sometimes. God already knows how you feel. So be 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 honest with God in the sense of tell him, tell him. Tell him your, your disappointments. Tell him everything. And then ask him to forgive you for any negative thoughts that he may that you may have had toward him or his word. And then ask him for his all-sufficient grace to help you see it differently and to walk in a way that would please him. Father, thank you this morning. Thank you, God, that you always care for us. You are the good shepherd. You always care for your sheep. Your love for us is, is an infinite love. It will never end. Help us not to doubt your love. Help us not to doubt your compassion for us, your mercy toward us, which are new every day. And Lord, help us to better understand the things that we need to do to make good decisions in life, decisions that will honor you, decisions that will give us a good testimony before others so that the gospel that we may have opportunity to speak to them will not be compromised by the life we live before them. Thank you for each one who is here today. Lord, I don't know if they're hurting, where they're hurting, but Lord, I just pray that through your tender mercy, that Lord, you would just, you would just touch them with the balm of Gilead. That Lord, you would you would help heal the hurts of their life, the deepest hurt of their life right now. That Lord, they just might be taken up with your love for them. That they would be renewed in the spirit of their mind. That they would be strengthened, and that they would be willing, Lord, to go forward to keep pressing on for you, no matter what obstacles they face. Lord, that we would all live not to please ourselves, but to please you, to please the one who, who died and rose again for our redemption. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.